I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? What Rich Devinny is a retired Navy SEAL commander. In a career spanning more than 20 years, he completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. As the officer in charge of training for a specialized command, Divini spearheaded the creation of a directorate that fused physical, mental, and emotional disciplines. He led his small team to create the first ever mind gym that helped special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments, especially high-stress ones. During his 20 years as a Navy SEAL, Commander Divini was intimately involved in the world-renowned SEAL selection process, which whittles exceptional candidates down to a small selection of the most elite optimal performers. He was often surprised by which recruits washed out and which succeeded. Someone could have all of the right skills and still fail, while recruits he might have initially dismissed would prove to be the top performers. Through years of observation, Divini learned to identify a successful recruit's core attributes, the innate traits for how a person performs as an individual as a part of a team. That same methodology can be used by anyone in their personal or professional lives. In his book, he details the key attributes for success, including cunning, adaptability, even narcissism. Some are defined in fresh and surprising ways, and Divini shows how they can be applied to a team as readily as a person. Understanding your own attributes and those of the people around you can fast-track optimal performance in all areas of your life. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Rich, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Good, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, Doing great. Doing great. Very well to hear. One thing I thought would be fun to start with is, are there certain non-negotiables that you have every day or have had through most of your adult life? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I wish there were more. Let me start with that. (laughs) Um, You know, the very basic, I mean, the non-negotiable for me when it comes to family first is I hug and kiss my wife and I hug and kiss my kids. That's non-negotiable every day and they're used to that, right? So uh, so I think that from a personal level, I think from a, uh, from a, from a kind of health level, I, owe, I do try to, I try to do something that gets my pulse rate up every day <laughs> if I can. Um, you know, and, and I should say pulse rate, you know, not necessarily pulse rate up, but certainly, um, you know, elevated. And then, um, and then I try to get outside at least once every day. In fact, in fact, I think I'm, I'm designed to be outside because I can't, I can't go a day just in the house, even if it's, you know, really bad weather, I have to get out and, and breathe the air and and feel the rain or the wind or whatever. So, um, so the list is, is short. Um, but, um, but those probably a couple of them. Speaking around how you're designed, something I, I came across in the book that I thought was really interesting, um, you were talking about your high school athletic career in lacrosse, and that you didn't find yourself to be a competitive person. And, and so I would love to just dive deeper into this, because I have to assume both myself and a lot of the listeners think, all right, highly decorated Navy SEAL, you, you must have been psychotically competitive almost to, to thrive in that environment. So I would love to unpack this. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great question. It's, it's something I, I was in fact, worried about. Um, I, I kind of realized my non-competitive nature when I was playing sports. And I know you were a lacrosse player too, but I, I didn't, I didn't really, 
we'd win or lose, and I didn't really care that much. I loved the game. I loved the precision of the game. I loved the team, the teamwork. Um, and so there were aspects of the of the, I guess, game and competition that I loved. But when it came to winning or losing, I wasn't emotionally moved either way. And so I said to myself, "Man, I, I just what's." What's going on? It worried me um, because I, just like you, you say, and probably most assume, I, I said to myself, "Man, if I'm not competitive, how am I going to do this in the SEAL teams?" Well, interestingly enough, when I got the SEAL teams, I realized that that, that buds, you know, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, the, the where you go to become a you know a Navy SEAL, um, favors neither the competitive uh, nor the non-competitive person, um, and and the proof in that is because. Well, one of the proofs is that they hand out two awards at the end of Buds. Um, one award is the Honor Man. The Honor Man gets an award for the fastest run times, fastest swims, fastest O courses, right? That that all adds up. And whoever has the highest scores gets the Honor Man award, right? That award favors the competitive person, the competitive spirit, right? But the other award they give is called the Fire in the Gut Award. The Fire in the Gut Award is given to the person, the student, um, who displayed throughout Buds the most grits, the most fortitude, the most mental toughness, whatever that looked like. And oftentimes that recipient had some of the lowest scores, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and, and really just nugged it out and grunted it out and just had a rough, I mean, everybody has a rough time in Buds, but it's typically the person who seems to have the roughest time, right? Um, and so so the, the course, and so this is one of the things I loved about uh, buds and people say seal training, man, it must be tough. And it was, you know, but uh, you know, one of the thing, things I really, really loved about the training course was it was so binary and so pure. Um, it was, it didn't care who you were, didn't care where you came from, didn't care if you were a, uh, an all-star athlete or a valedictorian. Um, all it did was take a bunch of dudes and say, Hey, we're going to throw you in this environment. And if you have what it takes, you have what it takes. Right. And it takes you down to zero or sub zero, uh, and sees if you have what it takes to get there, uh, and so and so that that kind of um, purity really uh, it's very first of all it's very um, um, it's very binding in terms of your relationships right you 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 form deep relationships with these with these other human beings because the the environment is so pure and there's no bias whatsoever it's just you the dude next to you or the dudes next to you in the environment. Um, but the other thing it, it, it showed me was that the, the SEAL teams, and, and I think any high-performing team, in fact, other than maybe an athletic team, um, favors both the competitive and the non-competitive spirit because, because the competitive spirit is very powerful in the sense that uh, someone who's competitive will look at a situation and start to immediately deconstruct what the boundaries are, what the rules are, what the game is, and then says, okay, how do we win, right? And that's really powerful. The non-competitive person will look at a situation or environment and say, okay, I understand what's going on here, but what's another way around this? What's another, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like competing in that little, in that mess or that zone. Um, so I'm going to go, I'm going to think of a different way. Right. So, you know, so in the, in, in combat, it's kind of the equivalent of sometimes you have to run it straight up the line. Sometimes you have to run the ball straight up the line. That's, that's what the environment requires, but sometimes you have to, bend the rules, break the rules, sneak around, do something different than no one ever thought of. And that's where a, a person who doesn't necessarily think competitively comes in very advantageously. And so that's why it was really cool to have both polarities on the SEAL teams. I, I love hearing the depth of this. I'd be, I'd be really intrigued to dive a little bit deeper and understand how you approach then releasing your first book and, and book com- publishing. How do you approach that? Are, are you coming at that with that non-competitive mindset as well? Yeah, well, I would say, I would say, um, I would say, well, the first way I approached it was, uh, was I kind of eschewed the assumption that I was going to write a leadership book um, because there's a lot of folks and certainly a lot of guys and guys I know who are out there writing leadership books and in the leadership space. And they're all doing really, really good things. I mean, I, I would, I would recommend all of them. Um, and, uh, but when I looked at that field, I said to myself, you know, that field seems, uh, a bit crowded. And I think that if I were to go into that field, I'd probably be saying a lot of the same stuff that all these guys who are phenomenal are saying. Um, and so why don't I just, why don't I just choose or look down another field? And my, my real deep passion uh, is really human behavior. Um, how do we, how do we do things 
uh, how do people do things like that are remarkable, <laughs> you know? And it really stemmed from, from myself. Like I looked around after I made it through Buds and, you know, I was in the teams for all. I kept on looking around and, be, and say to myself, how the heck did I get here? Um, how am I surrounded by such uh, all-star people? Uh, and what are those traits? What are those qualities that, that, that allow that to happen? And ironically, the guys around me, because they're, they're just as humble, if not more so, were saying the same thing about themselves. It was kind of this idea we all had this, this kind of tendency to try to throw ourselves into environments um, where we were surrounded by people we thought were better than us so that, that it brought up our game. Um, and so, uh, so, so one of the, um, one of the ways I approached the book was I said, I'm going to write a book that helps us understand and deconstruct this behavior. So it's going to be outside of this. I'll throw some, as you know, I threw some leadership stuff in there because leadership matters and, 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 and attributes do affect leadership. Um, but, uh, but then, and th- but then, say okay. Then I want to write something that is uh, much more of a long game type uh, book, where someone can actually use it. They can reuse it. They can kind of keep it by their nightstand, and it can it can have some legs. And so, uh, so that's kind of how I approached it. I, I guess I probably uh, didn't think too much. Uh, you know, again, I want to say, you know, sometimes being competitive. This is where attributes matter, right? Sometimes the the environment requires competitiveness, right? So sometimes I have to force myself and say, "Hey, now is the time to compete," right? And then other times, it's just really more where you where you bias towards, right? So uh, uh, so that's kind of how I approach the, the the book, I guess. You know, overall, yeah, I think one of the really helpful things with the book is a lot of these things are almost on a dimmer switch, right? All the, all the attributes that you go or you uncover and that a lot of us will have all of these, but to certain degrees and, and it just depends. And I know we're going to dive a lot into those, but something you brought up a minute ago about doing the remarkable and I, everyone's thinking, all right, there's so many f- people who, who love reading the Navy SEAL books, watching the shows on them. Very few people attempt to do that. Then very few people are successful. When was that moment for you growing up where you were like, you know what, this is something I think I'd love to do. Wow. I think, you know, I, I, so, so I learned about this. I always, I grew up wanting to be a Navy pilot. My, I have a twin brother. My dad was a private pilot. So he'd take us flying on the weekends, which is another thing. And my dad wasn't really competitive. He didn't really watch sports. So we'd go flying on the weekends. And so what was interesting is we'd go to school on Monday and all our friends would be talking about the football game. (laughs) And we were like, well, we didn't see it. We were flying with my dad, you know? So, um, but my, my brother and I wanted to be Navy pilots. And one of the reasons why we wanted to be Navy pilots was because we thought, we felt like, well, the, they're the only guys who land jets on boats, right? How hard is that? You know, <laughs> let's do that. You know, so, so there's obviously something in us that wanted to do that. Um, and he ended up being a Marine Corps pilot and flying the Harrier, which is, you know, that's a, that's the, the V-stole that goes up and down. Right. So, so that's a really difficult plane to fly. So he had his own difficulty, um, or challenge in that, but, I learned about the SEALs after the first Gulf War, um, and I saw, I read an article in Newsweek, and it, it, it like outlined all the special operations forces in the military post this Gulf War in 91. And, um, and so, you know, Army Green Berets, Rangers, SEALs, uh, Air Force PJs, etc. Um, and and out of, in that article, they had like, I don't know, 25 pictures or so of, of guys, spec ops guys in different environments, so one underwater, one in the snow, one in, you know, in free fall gear, one in the desert and jungle. And, um, and I realized that out of, out of the 25 pictures, like 20 of them were Navy SEALs just in different environments. <laughs> and so I said to myself, man, that's really cool. Those guys go everywhere. Um, so that was one thing. But the other thing was their, their, uh, kind of their, their, their waterborne nature. I mean, these, the SEALs were born in, you know, from the water. I mean, the whole idea was they were born from the UDT, the underwater demolition team. So, um, and I was always a water rat. I loved the ocean. I loved swimming. I loved everything about it. So, uh, so the idea that these guys and the, the saying in the teams was, and I, it still is, um, you know, the enemy will never be stupid enough or brave enough to follow you into the water. So when in doubt, go there. Right. Um, and so that the kind of the audacity of making a hostile environment, your, your safe place, <laughs> I thought was pretty cool. So, so I said to myself, let me, let me try it. And, um, and, just started marching down the road and got there and ended up where I was. So that was really the impetus of it. Uh, but you don't, I mean, especially in SEAL training, you never think of yourself as remarkable. I mean, that, you know, maybe think with yourself the opposite in SEAL training because they're just kicking your butt so hard. So, um, so I think it's, it's afterwards when you get through it, you say, wow, look at what I just did. Um, and I think there's a, because of the, 
because of the humility of the process, um, most, because um, I know that there are exceptions, but most guys come out of that process with a with an increased humility, you know, because because no one, you know, you can be as badass as you want, but when you start thinking about war and combat, um, the bullet doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care how big you are. It doesn't care how fast you are. It doesn't care how, uh, how strong you are, right? Um, so, uh, and, and nor does the environment, right? The ocean will kill you if you're not... <laughs> If you're not careful, so so there's so many things, there's so many aspects in the job that that um, are are uh, so much more, um, I guess, badass and hostile than than the human. That humility is is almost a prerequisite uh, uh, for the for the uh, uh, for the job. So so I don't think I would I would venture to guess that most, if not all, seals would would not. Uh, define themselves as remarkable, <laughs> you know, just just guys who figured out how to do things in gnarly environments and succeed. That's really interesting, and we're going to come back to to that line about thriving in kind of hostile environments because I underlined that. I actually had it in my notes as one of my favorite sections. So we're going to dive deeper into that. But I, I would love to know you talking about this increased humility, and, and I'm wondering because we always hear so much about buds, and and that's that's the main part of the training. I'm wondering what part of training do you think shaped you the most? Gosh, I, I don't. So I, I don't know if I could if I could nail down one thing. I felt like when I got to training, I immediately, I immediately felt like I, I locked in to kind of the the conduct of achieving the goal. And so the example is, I you know I so I got to seal training, and I'd really never run on soft sand. Anybody who's run on soft sand will know soft sand running is tough, and it's tough on the ankles. It's tough to do. There's a lot of resistance. Um, and so I got to SEAL training and I first showed up and I hadn't done a lot of running on soft sand. And so the first time we started running on soft sand, I was a mess, right? It was really hard. Um, and so I said to myself, well, this is not going to work. And so I remember on the weekends, you know, because you you basically do gnarly training from Monday through Friday and then you'd have Saturday and Sunday to kind of recover. On the weekends, I would put on my boots and I'd go running in the soft sand just to practice, just to figure out if there was a technique to try to do better. Um same thing with the obstacle course, which I had really never experienced, you know, and I'd go practice the obstacle course. And so what I realized about myself, I guess, in that process was that I was driven enough to, to do what I had to do, to do what it took to make it through. Um, and so I guess learning about that in myself carried through and certainly carried through th- through my career. Uh, and then, of course, once you're done and you realize, you look back and say, man, I just made it through hell week or I just made it through this training, you say, okay, Wait a second. I'm. I mean, if 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 the if the SEAL trainee coming out of buds can say that they have a preponderance of any one thing, it's confidence. <laughs> you know, it's you know coming out of buds because you're not you don't really learn too much about the task of being a Navy SEAL in buds. You learn some shooting, some basic demo, some diving, uh, but a lot of the a lot of the deep training of being a Navy SEAL happens after train after uh, buds. Um, and so I think. Uh, every guy, though, says, you know, I know that regardless of circumstance, regardless of environment, regardless of even how I might feel, I can do this. I can do whatever I'm asking myself to do or whatever my teammates are asking myself to do, which is a very, very powerful quality and one that I'm very, very grateful for. It's interesting. The two you bring up are confidence and then humility and yeah. almost how that how they can be opposites, but also play off of each other so well. Uh, yeah. I, I just find that really intriguing. I would love to know, do, do you think there's a certain type of, we can just call it training or system of training that the SEALs do that you just think would be so invaluable for, for any civilian that has just helped you tremendously in life? Well, the, the one thing I, I would say that about all spec operators um, and even, <clears throat> even uh, military folks who go through some very intense training is that, uh, is that in in those types of environments, what's happening is you're you're being thrown into deep challenge, uncertainty, and stress, and you're being asked to make it through. And so, so that's the the conduct of that act alone um, is invaluable training for any human being because you can, because you can you can you can translate that you can map that onto almost any environment. It's funny I. I live in a neighborhood, and um, I have three other seals in my neighborhood. Right, one across the street, one down the road to the right, one down the road to the left, and um, and obviously it's great having the neighborhood, awesome dudes. Um, but I remember my wife once saying uh, to me, she's like, "I'm so glad these guys are around because if anything, if you were gone and anything happened, I know 
uh, I know that I could go to them, any one of them, and they'd act just like you act. And I said, what do you mean by that? She said, they'd immediately calm down, they'd figure out the problem, and start working the problem. Uh, and I think that's what, that's what um, this type of training does, is it allows you to, in the deepest moments of stress, challenge, and uncertainty, calm yourself and, and, and begin working the problem. And, that, and, and working the problem might be really tiny steps or it might be leaps, whatever that is. But it's that, it's that ability to take that action, uh, however small or however large. And I think that is translatable to every human being. So, so the question you ask, I mean, if there were, I don't know if you could take one thing out of SEAL training and have every civilian do it um, because some people wouldn't be able to carry boats on their heads. Some people would, would freeze in the cold water. Um, I think it's a combination of things, but I think the good news is that we all, as human beings, go through stress, challenge, uncertainty. I mean, look at, gosh, look at 2020. I mean, that's a, 2020 was all of our own buds. I mean, the only difference between SEAL training and 2020 was that none of us volunteered to be there and none of us had a bell to ring to quit, right? We all, we were all stuck there, right? So we were all forced to really look ourselves in the mirror and press through. Um, and it's going to be, and anybody who takes the time to kind of look back and, and autopsy that and autopsy their behavior and where they did, where they did things great, where they did things uh, that were not so great, that is lessons. Those are lessons that can be applied. And so this is one of the reasons why I'm really happy that the attributes is coming out when it is, because I had no, I mean, the book was almost written, almost, almost complete by the time we all went into lockdown. So I had no clue that this would happen. Um, but what I realized as I was kind of editing and stuff, I was like, man, this is actually, 2020 was a great uh, environment, great laboratory inside of which all of us had our attributes tested. And all of us can begin to see where we're, uh, where we're, we're high on some and maybe a little bit deficient on others and where we might want to work on things. So, uh, so I think that's, uh, that's a really interesting process that all of us can take away from. Oh, absolutely. You, you want to talk about 2020. I mean, you were thrown in the arena and yeah. if you're willing yeah. to do that self-discovery of where, where you excelled, where, where you were, where flawed, uh, it was an unbelievable time. So, so I, I love how you bring that up. And, and one of the reasons the attributes really resonate with me, uh, the book is, is just because you dive into the neuroscience as well. And I think that's so important, so key, um, because one of the things I'm always trying to work on is remaining calm in hostile environments, whether it be during investments, whether it be during meetings, anything like that. So when you actually understand how the brain works, which is you did such a great job explaining, uh, it's always so much more helpful. I would love, though, to, to understand how you came across and even developed these 25 attributes. So this is probably going to start with a high-level overview of what the new book, The Attributes, is, and then how you distilled them down to 25 attributes. Yeah, well, it all started when I was in, I was still in the SEAL teams, and I was actually running uh, assessment, selection, and training for one of our very specialized commands. And in this particular command, what what was happening was we take um, experienced spec operators and then put them through our process. It was about a nine month process, and that would be whether and whether or not they made it through uh, would uh, decide whether or not they could, you know, they were able to serve at the unit. And, um, and so we were getting um, very experienced SEALs, and we were still getting about a 50% attrition rate. So 50% of these really experienced guys were not making it through our program. Um, and we were really uh, at a loss on how to effectively articulate why. The best we had was, well, this guy didn't cut it. He wasn't, he wasn't, a, he wasn't good enough at CQB, which is close quarter combat or close quarter battle. He wasn't a good enough skydiver or whatever. Um, and those 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 um, reasons weren't landing well with us because we knew it was kind of like well that's that's not really the that's not the real deep reason they weren't landing well with our leadership because our leadership was like hey you got to do better than that because we had you know, all these guys are coming and now we have to we have to send them away um, and they certainly weren't especially weren't landing well with the actual candidate because this is these were guys were coming at the at the peak of their of their confidence. Like, Hey, I'm, I, I got selected to come to this selection process. And now you're telling me that I don't have what it takes. And so, uh, so I took over training and I was asked by my CEO to kind of take a look at trying to articulate this a little better. And that's when I really had to start thinking about the difference between skills and attributes. So just to break it down, um, for your audience, I mean, skills and attributes, they, they get conflated all the time, but they're inherently different. Skills are not inherent to our nature, right? Uh, we're not born with the ability to ride a bike or drive a car or shoot a gun in the military sense, right? Um, we can we, we we learn those, we can be taught them, um, and we can we can even sit down in a classroom and be taught uh, them. I can teach you how to shoot, right? Uh, that's a, that's a skill. Um, they direct our behavior in known 
uh, environments, right? Here's how and when to drive a car. Here's how and when to ride a bike. Here's how and when to shoot a, shoot a gun. Um, and therefore, because they're so visible and because they, they can be broken down and taught in steps, um, they're very easy to see, assess, and measure, right? You can see how well we do any one of those things. This is why most teams um, uh, are guilty of focusing mostly on skills because you can see how well someone's sales numbers are or how well someone is, a, how, how good of a graphic designer. Uh, those are very visible things. Um, what skills don't tell us, however, is how we show up in stress challenge and certainly when the environment goes south and sideways and nothing makes sense, right? Um, everything goes to hell. That's where attributes come in. Attributes are inherent to our nature, right? We're born, all of us are born with some levels of resilience, adaptability, situational awareness, um, even discipline to a, to a degree. Because um, you can see some of that in, in small kids. Uh, they inform rather than direct our behavior. So, so for example, my levels of adaptability and resilience will inform the way I show up when I'm learning how to ride a bike and I'm falling off a dozen times. You know, how am I showing up during that process? Um, because they're hidden, though, because they're in the background, uh, kind of like an app, uh, kind of like the backgrounds um, programming on an app on an iPhone, um, they are very hard to assess, measure, and test. They're hard to see, um, and they're most visible and visceral again when you're in challenge, uncertainty, and stress. Which is exactly why I felt like, man, I was in a perfect laboratory yeah. to be able to see this stuff. Because SEAL training, whether it's buzz, buds, or whether it was the training I was running, is all about throwing people into deep challenge, uncertainty, and stress. And so. Um, and so the attributes start to, sh- to show up. And, and, and if you start thinking about attributes in terms of this is what's driving my behavior, okay, once I'm, once I'm behaving, that might be a skill, but this is driving my behavior, uh, then you start to understand how someone shows up. And we realized uh, that we needed to look at our training program and say, okay, instead of judging someone on how, how good of a shot they are, for example, or how fast they run, or you know how well they skydive. Um, we need to figure out what are the attributes we're looking for. Okay, and so the, so we be, we set out to kind of make a list, and we got together small groups and put together a list, and we came up with about thirty six that we were looking for. Um, and and it changed the game for us in terms of being able to articulate why certain guys were making it and why certain guys weren't making it. Um, it also began to help us spot the dark horses. So someone who showed up and they didn't necessarily have the skills, right? And that guy's a really bad shot, but he has all the attributes we're looking for. So we can always teach him how to shoot. That's easy. You know, when it came to writing the book, I realized I didn't want to write a book about seals and I didn't write a, want to write a book um, that made, um, that wasn't relatable. I wanted to write a book that was about the reader. So I had to ask myself, okay, when it comes to just human behavior, when it comes to our own performance in the world, what are the attributes out of this? I, I, I used the list of the 36 first and I whittled it down and kind of changed it a little bit. But what are the what are the attributes that are most um, uh, important and kind of the most uh, show up the most when it comes to just performing every day? And that's how I kind of whittle it down to the twenty five that are in the book, and then of course put it into categories. So what are the ones that make up grit? What are the ones that make up mental acuity? What are the ones that make up drive? And then leadership and team ability. So uh, so that was really the impetus and the process, and it was really fun because again, once you start actually writing. And actually doing the work, the the ideas keep on coming, which was also fun. Yeah, the, the, the fun thing with writing is you realize how little you actually know of the things you've been trying to say. Um, That's right. <laughs> so, so I'm actually curious about that. I believe we're, we're going to dive a lot into the attributes. But as you're uncovering this, um, is, is there things you learn even more about yourself while, while writing this book? Oh, for, for, uh, without a doubt. Um, because I didn't, because I never had thought about necessarily how the attributes applied to me because I was always running it. Uh, for for others, I was run, running this training program. So really, sitting it down, sitting down and doing it, I had to start saying, okay, well, how does this apply to me, and how can I best define it? this? Is a, the perfect example is com, uh, com, um, competitiveness. Competitiveness um, was previously one of the uh, one of the most one of the primary attributes. As you as you see in the book, I moved it to what I call the others. These attributes that uh, because I realized competitiveness, you can be non-competitive and be very, very successful. It's not a requirement, which means both competitiveness and non-competitiveness, high levels of each, are good, right? Versus, say, adaptability. I think we can all argue um, pretty effectively that if you're if you're low on adaptability, you're probably not going to be very uh, successful. You're, you're not gonna, you're not going to perform optimally. You have to be the higher you are, the more adaptable you are, the better. Um, but that's not the case with competitiveness. So that so so it allowed me to do some exploration on 
on how uh, how the attributes felt for me, and then I, and of course looking at my the guys I had worked with, and then also just people I've worked with since getting out of the navy, you know, and and looking at business teams and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I would you know anybody who's interested in writing, uh, my first piece of advice would be start writing, <laughs> because because as soon as like you said, as soon as you start writing. You, you get what you're thinking down on page and that clears your head and suddenly new ideas pop up and you just like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. And it's just a really cool process. I, I love thinking through the the stress challenge and uncertainty. And I, I know in the book you talk about dormant attributes that, that come mm-hmm. out during these times. And I would love for you to elaborate on this because I think this is one of the really interesting insights uh, that the attributes provided. Yeah, well, so so the dormant attributes are basically attributes that you have and maybe even have high levels of, but you never knew you had uh, because you've never been put or thrown into an environment that's teased that attribute out. Um, so so uh, a, an example could be that someone someone could think of themselves as an impatient person, you know, and then, um, and then that person has kids, okay? And in the child rearing process, they realize, oh, wait a second, I'm actually a pretty patient person, right? Patience comes out, right? Um, but I would say this, I mean, for anybody who's interested in their dormant attributes, um, any story in your life that you can think of or recall um, that ends with this, that can end with the sentence, I never knew I had it in me, um, is an example of a dormant attribute coming to the fore that you didn't know you had. Um, and again, that's usually done, that usually happens in challenge, uncertainty, and stress. When, when we get uncomfortable and, and, and things don't make sense and we, we don't have any skills to apply, that's really when those things start showing up. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I have two kids under the age of two and a half, so, so those patients are being tested at all times right now for me. Yeah. I didn't know I had some of these skills in me. Uh, By the way, it'll, 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 your, taste, your patients will te- be tested even more when they become teenagers, just oh, I so know. You know, a little preview. <laughs> Very much looking forward to that. Uh, one of the things I love you talking about, and you mentioned this a minute ago, is around those dark horses. And I think a lot of the people, myself in particular, we're, we're always looking for that, that undiscovered talent and where we can find it. Do you have a specific concrete example around how someone maybe didn't have the right skills, but due to the attributes, you could uncover one of these dark horses? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'll give you kind of an example that's, that's probably a, a conglomerate of a bunch of different things I've learned and people I've talked to. Because again, you know, uh, and I, in the chapter I call, I have a chapter called the Dream Team Paradox. This is the paradox of dream teams. People's, people put together dream teams usually based only on skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happens is you have all the best, pe- best people, right? And, um, and things are going great while things are going great. And then as soon as something bad happens, as soon as a, a curveball is thrown, suddenly, you know, th- people start to break down because the skills, they can't, the skills don't apply. So you realize, oh, shoot, that person is not adaptive at all. That person is uh, not humble at all. That person has no empathy, right? So these things start to break down and becomes toxic. Um, I would say that the, the attribute that sometimes... Uh, difficult to see but fun when it shows up is humor um mm-hmm. because sometimes you just sometimes you'll be hanging with people and something and you're like oh they're, they're just normal and then something bad will happen and that the one person will pipe up with something like hilarious and like make you all laugh you're like oh my god that that person's really funny i mean so so um so humor is one that sometimes shows up without people uh people seeing i think the grit ones and so the grit attributes are uh are courage uh, perseverance adaptability and resilience um, those are very, very difficult to see unless you are in environments that actually ask for grit, <laughs> you know? So, so that is, that, that becomes a, a challenging thing for any hiring process or recruitment process, because how do we, how do we put someone through, how do we test this stuff with, you know, while still saying, you know, kind of being, staying legal, I guess, <laughs> because, because throwing, <laughs> throwing a bunch of accountants into the surf zone is probably not a good idea, right? Nor would it necessarily tell you how, how good they are at accounting. So, um, uh, so I think some of those dormant attributes, you know, again, um, tough to say because it becomes subjective in terms of which ones you see. Uh, I mean, SEAL training is is an easy one because you just, it's an environment that whether you see it beforehand or not, you're going to see someone's level of grit. You're going to see someone's level of drive. Um, the When I was running training for, uh, you know, for uh, when I was training or running uh, close quarter combat training, which is this concept, this idea for your audience of just going into buildings and clearing out rooms, <clears throat> very dynamic uh, process, very fast. It's kind of like when you do it right, it's kind of like a dance. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really masterful thing. Um, 
I was blown away as to how visible the mental acuity attributes became in that environment. In fact, that was probably the premier environment uh, for us to see mental acuity attributes. So, uh, so the environment will tell you oftentimes uh, which, uh, which attributes are going to come to the fore or which attributes will be leaned on or required more. You mentioned clearing a building there. It's almost like an elegant dance. I, w- I would love to know how many practice reps does it seem to take to, to get to that level of skill? Yeah. Well, so, so, so the dance is a mix between skills and attributes. Talent, I think, is a mix. It's a, it's a dynamic uh, kind of synchronization between skills and attributes. That's what talent, I think, really is. Um, because, again, you look at the best athletes, even athletes, which, which athletics are, are highly, highly, highly skills-based um, because you need to know, because you have rules and boundaries and you can practice skills, right? But we all know that the, the top athletes in the world, they're not that way because of just skills. I mean, you know, um, a lot of people can probably throw a football the same way Tom Brady can throw a football. Um, but there's a lot more to Tom Brady, <laughs> you know, in that, on that football field than just throwing the football. There's adaptability, there's situational awareness, there's, there's uh, patience, there's uh, all the team ability ones. Um, so, uh, so I think the, the, uh, the idea of – so. To get back to your question, I mean, going through a clearing a house, you can see any any type of dance like that is you is a is a is a exercise in making sure you have the skills. Okay, I've trained on the range enough so that I can I can point my rifle and shoot the, uh, shoot and hit the target where I need to hit it. So I have that skill. Um, but then it's a matter of just reps, you know, and just and just being in that environment, and you begin to um, uh, practice the dance. You know, the the because no. Um, no CQC run is ever going to be the same, right? It's always going to be different, all right? So you just, you you understand the skills in terms of, okay, I know in this situation uh, I can do this and this and this, and then it's just a matter of getting comfortable applying things as the environment change. And, and of course, you add into that the teamwork. I mean, there's a there's an enormous level of trust, and you know the the guys going in with you, you know what they can do, you know their their capabilities. So that's how it begins to mesh uh, when it when it meshes really perfectly, which is really how any team should be. Rich, you mentioned just even being willing to go into those environments. Uh, and, th- and that makes me think a lot about fear. And I'm sure a lot of people, Rich, Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL, um, probably doesn't experience fear. And I know from the book, uh, you, you talk about courage, and that's not necessarily yeah. the case. I would love for you to dive into this, because I think this is a really interesting perspective. Uh, a lot of people probably wouldn't think about uh, around, especially someone like yourself, a former Navy SEAL. Well, yeah, it's a, yeah and it's an it's a invalid assumption, <laughs> because every human being experiences fear. Um, fear, is a, fear is actually a requirement to, be, to survive the human experience. If we, if the, I was, I was uh, advised as a young officer to beware the fearless leader because he'll likely get you killed. Do not follow someone who's fearless because that means they're not listening to the cues that are telling them to slow down or think twice or take a step in a different direction, right? So, um, but fear ultimately breaks down to, to the combination of two things. It's the combination of anxiety plus uncertainty, right? So um, you can have one or the other and not have fear show up. You, uh, we can be anxious about a presentation we're going to give next week in front of our boss um, we know when it's going to be, uh, we know kind of how it's going to go. Cause we know the, we know the presentation. It's not like we don't know it. Right. So we're just anxious. So there's no fear. Um, you can be uncertain without being anxious. Okay. That's every kid on Christmas Eve. Okay. So, um, and so fear is not, it doesn't exist there. When you begin to combine anxiety with uncertainty, that's when fear begins to show up. Uh, and fear is an interesting thing because, um, it's a, it's a, uh, kind of an autonomic response, right? Uh, it starts to bubble up in our amygdala and our brain begins to say, okay, what am I going to do here? Um, I'm, I'm left with two choices, right? Either fight or flight. You know, some people think, you know, there's a, the, the freeze choice is there, but really what the freeze choice is neurologically is our kind of oscillation in trying to decide whether or not to fight or flight. Um, if we go either direction, right? If we, if we either choose to fight and fight again is not put up your dukes and, and punch people. It's really, it's step into the fear. It's move into the fear. Um, and then flight is to retreat from the fear. If we decide to go either direction, a, uh, a unique circuit is tripped in the brain. Okay. So it's a separate circuit for, for, for flight than it is for, for fight. Um, if you decide to step in, if you decide to fight, a, a circuit is flipped and that's really kind of the courage circuit, right? A, 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 a switch is flipped in your brain and you're immediately rewarded with dopamine, 
Okay. Now we all know what dopamine is. It's been all over for, for a while, but you know, the feel good chemical tells our body, tells our system, Hey, this feels good. Keep doing it. Okay. Very powerful chemical. We're rewarded with that dopamine every time we step into our fear. So this is a, a common misconception is that dopamine only comes at the completion of a goal, right? No, it comes every time we step into fear. Okay. So, uh, so I think, um, when it comes to courage, uh, we all have kind of a set point, um, in our, in our autonomic system as to when we're going, we're going to kind of tip into that fear response. If, 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 if the mean is like boiling point, right? 20, uh, two twelve. um, then we all know some people who boil over at like 190. They get they get afraid faster than normal. You know, they get freaked out faster than normal. But there are other people who boil. It takes a while for them to boil over. Like you know, I don't know if you you know the Alex Honnold uh, documentary uh, Free Soul. That guy he, he's probably set at like 230. Right? <laughs> it takes a while for him to 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 boil over. Um, wherever you wherever you land on that is probably a level of your it starts to, to starts to speak to your level of courage as an attribute but just know this is that and, and I think it's important for people um, it is a conscious choice right we can we can consciously decide to continually step into our fear to move in and we'll get and we'll get a reward for doing so um, now caveat is that sometimes the better answer is to retreat stepping into our fear is not always the right answer right because you know fighting a bear will get you killed so um but but uh, but again we're not in a position where we're fighting a lot of bears so so giving that presentation that you don't want to give you know or that public speech that you don't want to give um taking on that project that you might have been hesitant to um starting that conversation with the with the with the person that you uh, have a crush on those are all ways that people can actually step into their fear um, and they will get a uh, a dopamine hit, uh, and 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 it's a way to practice it. And so I think I think for spec operators, the advantage we have is we're just asked to do it so often. You know, there are guys in the SEAL teams who don't like scuba diving; they hate to be underwater. They do it every day. There are guys like me who don't really like heights, so skydiving was an issue. There are guys. I mean, the the the, the special operations community, the police community, the firefighting community, the first responder community—all these people who serve. Um, in stressful situations and under duress, all these people are regular people who have decided actively to continually step into their fear. Um, and and if you do that often enough, it becomes fairly habitual, um, which I wouldn't say makes it easier, but it certainly makes it um, more. It certainly makes you more able to do it, uh, to especially take that first step. Rich, that was awesome. That was like a masterclass in, in terms of <laughs> deconstructing how you work, how the brain actually operates, uh, and then applicable lessons there for everyone. So that, that was awesome. Uh, I couldn't have asked for anything better there. Uh, I have to go on a side comment here for a second. You, you bring up Alex Honnold. I listened to a great conversation the other day with uh, uh, Dr. Michael Gervais, the performance yeah. specialist, and Jimmy Chin, the one who put together the free solo documentary. And at the very yeah, end of yeah. it, he had a really interesting thing. And this is something I want to talk about with you. Um, around Alex's visualization process. So I would love to know about if you use visualization at all. And he was talking about Alex in, in preparation for free soloing. He actually visualizes, he'll spend all day just sitting there thinking about through every possible climb, but he thinks about falling and understanding if he messes up what her, his possible escape routes are, which I just thought was a really interesting perspective. Uh, so it's so, a so long-winded way of asking, do you use or have you used visualization at all? Oh yes. Uh, in fact, we 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 actually started to study it a little bit because I was I've always been fascinated with visualization, and even when we were in the teams, and actually when I was in the same job as a training officer, uh, we were putting together some some uh, some procedures and methods to help uh, guys perform better, faster, and stronger. And visualization became one of those things we really looked into. Um, when you look into the psychology of visualization, the brain. Um, when you properly, when you kind of actively visualize, um, and when I say actively visualize, you, you kind of, you, you close your eyes and you can, you can see yourself in a situation. You can feel like Alex's case, he can feel the rocks on his hands, you know, actively visualize that way. Um, your brain begins to not, uh, be able to tell the difference between the re- reality and what you're visualizing. In other words, it's going to make, it's going to start making the same chemicals, uh, that it would if you were in that situation, Already, so what does that tell us? That tells us if you are able to actively visualize um, training something, whether it be climbing or a skill. And, and I, I actually, I was told by out of example of this with a with a field goal kicker. One of the one of the docs I was working with said he had um, had a, a field goal, a football field goal kicker come in, and this field goal kicker was spending 
uh, about 85, 90% of the time on the field practicing kicking, right? And he said, okay, we're, we're going to switch that. We're going <clears> to, <throat> we're going to take your physical training down to about 50% and we're going to spend the rest of the 50% just visualizing yourself kicking, right? The, 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 the advantage of visualizing is you can actually visualize perfectly. Okay. You can actually visualize yourself doing the act perfectly. Um, that becomes training and you're actually myelin, you're, you're actually creating myelin around those neural circuits in that process. You're learning through visualization. So, uh, so absolutely visualization is huge. Um, and the key is to try to do it, um, in an area where you can actually get really in depth in it. You, you want to be able to just feel, hear, smell everything around it. Um, and it'll begin to elicit those, uh, those, um, uh, those chemicals. So I've used it all the time. I use it for, I've used it for training and I've also used it for relaxation as well. And, um, and, um, kind of coming, you know, and recovery, you know, cause you can, you can use it for that as well. Yeah, it's something I, I used a lot in my athletic career, and then even now, I mean, in preparing for a meeting, anything like that, even in this conversation, uh, I find myself really trying to feel every single thing I'd feel during these moments. Um, yeah. So that, that's something, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I would love if people develop that even more. Rich, I can't help but think that you just seem to me to be a very, very deep thinker. Um, <laughs> and even the book and then just our conversation, just how many different things you know, um, and even just the, your ability to cross-pollinate ideas amongst different different fields, uh, learnings, everything like that. Uh, I'm wondering, how much time do you spend just with this introspective, deep thinking process? Yeah, uh, quite a bit. Um, I I really enjoy and I believe that introspection is one of the most necessary uh, factors, especially in self-development, self-improvement, to to kind of think about um, yourself and think about things. Um, You know, it's interesting. I had thought about this when someone else had asked me a while ago, and I realized I kind of walked this back when I was a kid, you know, it was, I grew up in the eighties, right. And we, you know, I, you know, three other siblings and I remember we'd go on vacations, but we'd always drive places. So we drive everywhere in our, around the country and we didn't have Walkmans and we didn't have iPhones, you know, and I, you know, all I did for hours and hours and hours was stare out the window of the car. And I'd imagine, and I realized, I recognized how powerful that activity was for me as an adult because I can sit on an airplane now and I can just look out the window. I don't need to watch a movie. You know, I sometimes do, but I don't need to, right? And sometimes I, sometimes I deliberately take off the headphones and I just think. Um, I think it's really important for all of us to understand the power of introspection and to, to let ourselves be in our own heads um, because we're so inundated with so many ways we can escape um, that it's almost... Uh, it's almost habitual that we don't uh, kind of think. We don't get into our heads. We're, we're always we're sitting at the airport and we're waiting for our flight. And it's ten minutes before we board. We whip out our iPhone and start doing a game there, right? Um, we listen to some music. We, we listen to a podcast, whatever it is. Um, we're we're actually we've we've developed a habit of escaping and entertaining ourselves because it's become so easy. And again, there's nothing wrong with doing that once in a while, but we just have to understand that when we do that, we're not allowing our brains to be kind of inside, not allowing ourselves to be inside our head. And as soon as we start getting inside our head, um, we can start thinking about ideas. I mean, I'll listen to a podcast, for example, and I'll hear someone say something or the host and the guest will, will say something. And I'm like, man, that's really good. I'll shut off the podcast and I'll think about it for like 10 minutes, you know, because, because I want to take that time. I want to take that time to process how I'm thinking about it, how I feel about it, what my thoughts are. Um, and that's become kind of routine. The, we we have to find our moments. Um, I would tell you one of the one of the places uh, that I love the most doing it is all is running. I'll go for uh, jogs uh, on trails around here where I live in Virginia, and um, I have no headphones. I don't time myself. I don't pace myself. I'm by myself, and I'll just run. And that that combination of just the physical activity and just thinking, man, I I come up with so I I just at one point I had to start bringing a. Um, uh, I bought a little microphone or a, a, a recording device because I'd come up with so many ideas that I'd forget them by the time I <laughs> finished the run. So I'd I'd record them while I was running, which was always hilarious to listen back on because you're, you know, breathing hard. But um, um, but it's a great it's a great it's great thinking time for me. And so I would encourage everybody to to try to have times in their days uh, to just think, be inside their head, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time. It can be literally you're waiting, you know, at the pharmacy for your turn to go. Try not to look at your phone. Just think, look around, observe, you know, um, be inside your head. And I think that's really valuable. 
you, you put one of the puzzle pieces together for me just now. The last week and a half has been one of those weeks where I've just had to shut off a lot of things. And even when I'm working out, no music, just silence. It's like I just needed to think. And then you just mentioned about running without headphones. Uh, I, I live in South Florida. I usually spend a lot of time, a nice long swim, completely clear my head, no headphones. A little bit colder, so I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't want to get in the water. And now I'm, I'm realizing that I, I hadn't had enough of those swims built in right now with all that free yeah. time. Um, yeah. w- one thing I've discovered a lot during this self-reflection, introspection period is some, a lot of times the best answers come from the best questions. Uh, I know yes. kind of throwing you on the spot here. Are there any questions that you've gone to that you think are just very helpful in, in helping clear your mind or answer some questions for you? Well, yeah, and and um, actually, it's a great it's a great segue because one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that neurologically we're designed to answer questions. That's what our brains do. Our brains are constantly asking questions about the environment to understand the environment. Oftentimes, it's um, it's done, being done unconsciously. Uh, however, if we if we consciously take charge of our of that and ask ourselves any question, our our forebrain is immediately going to come up with answers. Okay, the problem is most of us do this without thinking, and we do it the wrong way. We say things like, why am I so bad at this? Or why does this always happen to me? As soon as you lodge that question into your brain, your brain's going to come up with answers. I do this experiment with uh, classes I teach sometimes where I say, okay, I'm going to give you 30 seconds and I'm going to ask you this question. Um, how, would you, how could you double your income in the next six months? Okay, You have 30 seconds, write down anything that pops into your head. Okay, And I give the group 30 seconds to do it. And it, I said, it doesn't matter how ridiculous, just write down anything that pops in your head. Okay, after about 30 seconds, pretty much everybody will have at least three, four, five answers written down. And what I tell them is that, hey, this is not an example of that question. It's not an example. I don't even care what the answers are. This is an example of when you put any question to your brain, your brain begins to answer it. All right, so you can take charge of that by, by reframing your questions and saying, hey, how can I get better at this? Um, what are some of the things I've learned? Um, the, the kind of to get to the original crux of your question, um, because people ask me all the time, Hey, what, can you give me a list of great questions? Well, the questions are largely subjective. However, the question I ask myself when I don't know what to ask myself is what's the better question right now. All right. And I just let my brain answer that (laughs) and I come up with questions. Okay. Um, if you're in deep challenge, uncertainty and stress, um, and you don't, and the environment doesn't make sense and you just don't know really what's going on or how to get through, the question I always ask myself is, what can I control right now? Um, and this is something that the Spec Ops guys do and the SEALs, you know, sometimes SEALs will call it, you know, just control your three-foot world. Um, and it's, it's about understanding, um, hey, out of all of this, what can I control right now? That, now, that, that answer might be, I can only control the step I'm taking, and I'll take one step. But guess what? After you take that step, you ask again. And that's how you step through challenge, uncertainty, and stress. You just you you begin to ask yourself, "What can I control?" You move to that, and then you ask it again, and then you move to that, and you ask it again. This is kind of like eating the elephant one bite at a time, or you know, chunking your environment. Um, but it's very, very powerful because you're 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 activating the neurology that already exists in your brain in a positive, proactive way. Um, and by the way, by doing that, every time you're 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 deciding what to control, stepping towards it, you're also especially in challenges and certain stress, you're probably triggering that, that courage circuit. So you're getting a dopamine hit. So you're getting rewarded for it and you're stepping through. Um, and so this is the difference between, and I talk about it in the book as well, peak performance and optimal performance, right? I was never really um, interested in peak performance, although it's great, okay? But, but I felt like, you know, we spec ops guys were mostly optimal performance. So peak is a, it's, a, it's an apex from which you can only come down. It has to be planned for and prepared for and scheduled um, the athlete prepares for his or her entire week so that they may peak for the moment, you know, when they're, when they're competing, right? Um, that's not real life. Real life is actually optimal performance. Optimal performance is how can I do the very best I can in the moment with what I got, whatever that looks like, okay? Sometimes that might look like peak. It might look like flow states and everything's clicking and it feels awesome. A lot of times it might look like I'm just taking one step at a time. That's all I got. That's all I can do. Oh, enter COVID, right? All of us, you know, we woke up, you know, the morning of quarantine, very few of us had skills which we could apply to this. So we were leaning on our attributes and we were saying to ourselves, hey, what can I do right now? What can I control? Well, I'll, I'll kind of do this and I'll do that. And I would, I would imagine very few of us could, could uh, describe our performance during 2020 as peak. <laughs> okay. Um, most of us were optimally performing. Again, nothing wrong with peak. When you can plan to peak, when you can peak, do it, right? But just know that, that, uh, that reality and life 
requires optimal performance. Optimal performance is much more responsible and it's much more, um, I guess, also healthy, right? Because we begin to not beat ourselves up for not kind of being the best or doing the best, right? We're just, we're doing what we can do in the moment. We're understanding the modulation that that's required for life. This is great. I, I ask a question looking for a tactic and you just drop wisdom, which is of course the only thing we need in, the, in, in this world. You bring up a really interesting thing. Uh, you've already brought up a lot of great points. Uh, I think that would help with this, but around not beating yourself up. I know it's coming like type A personality, a lot of high performers. Uh, the second that like we're not redlining, it's all of a sudden we start beating ourselves up. Anything that you've uncovered that's been helpful for you when those times pop up? Um, well, I, it's really this idea of, Hey, what is, what, what, what can I do in the moment and just do that? And so, so I, I kind of remember when I was in seal training, and I was freezing in the surf zone, you know, they do surf torture out there. There was nothing peak about my performance. I was just doing the best I could, which was not to quit, right. Which is to stay here until they tell me to do something else. Okay. Um, but regular life, you know, involves this. I mean, look at the cancer, look at someone who's, who's going through cancer treatment. I mean, any cancer patient will tell you, Hey, usually on the days of chemo, Hey, during this, that chemotherapy, I was just, I was just making it through the next minute or the next hour or the next day. You know, that's what I was doing. I was just stepping through. Um, and so I think if we accept ourselves, I mean, the key to not beating ourselves up is accepting that we're human (laughs) because, because none of us are from, you know, Krypton. Okay. So, so we all have down moments. We all have up moments. And what we need to understand is as long as in our down moments, we're still, um, okay. Okay. And it, it, and I say progressing, but even progressing, even, even, even doing the right thing, doing the best you can might not even be progressing. It might be resting. It might be just staying put for a while. Right. And that's important too. Um, so as long as you're doing the right thing by yourself, uh, for yourself, um, and for your team, um, it, it can be gritty. It can be muddy. It can be dirty. It can be uncomfortable, but it, that's what it is, you know, and, and don't beat yourself up because it's highly unrealistic to try to be peak all the time. And look, those, and I don't do ultra runs, right? But those people who do long ultra runs um, would tell you, if I would ask them, hey, are you at peak for your whole ultra run? They're like, hell no, mm-hmm. right? They're not peak the whole time. They're, they're modulating. It's a modulation um, that, that goes on. Such is life, okay? We, we modulate ourselves so that we move through life. And, and in every moment, we're saying, okay, in this moment, what's my good, what's, my, what's the best setting right now? Um, and then that will, that will inform us as to when we have to run up to 10 and then be down at two, you know, and I think that's, if we're doing that, there's no reason why we should beat ourselves up. Yeah. Such a great point. Life works in oscillation. You're going to, you need that stress. You're going to need that rest. You're going to need that recovery. Yeah. Uh, that's such a great point. I, I, I just love how many different, um, rabbit holes almost I, I could go down with you. And clearly you're very well read. Uh, I'm just wondering, are there certain books or even other things you've come across throughout all the years that, that you just thought, wow, this is, this has a lot of wisdom packed in this. I might revisit this again. Yeah, well, I, I looked at the, you know, the, the list of books you have on your website, by the way, is phenomenal. I've read a lot of those. Those are all great books. Um, the, um, I t- also try to read books that are a little bit outside of maybe what, um, what I might be thinking about. Um, because I think the, one of the, well, I think I, I've, I've been told that one of the um, sparks of creativity is the, is the ability to kind of um, merge two um, concepts that are not the same, you know, right? So in other words, um, if you read a book on underwater basket weaving and, you know, you, and one of those concepts you get from your underwater basket weaving, you suddenly can relate to how I'm planning this next mission, you know, that's creativity, right? So, um, so the diversification of what we read, I think is important. Um, and I try to be a little bit diversified. Admittedly, I don't read a lot of fiction, um, um, but I, I should, you know, I don't think people should focus on fiction um, uh, because, uh, because there should be a balance there. And sometimes fiction can move a little bit more into the escape category. Um, but, uh, but I think diversifying what you read, I think one of the best, one of the best recent books I reread was Sapiens, um, by Harari, uh, because I think, um, it's just such a really great, uh, I mean, it's long, but it's a really great explanation of who we are as humans, you know, and the fact that we are humans. And I think for me, it's always boiling down to, I am interested in, in helping people Well, doing this myself too, but, but doing, how can we continually seek our edges and explore our potential and move to the next edge and do it again and do it again. That's how we evolve. That's how we become 
Um, that's how we've gone from cave dwellers to space explorers is that we've, we've, people have always looked at what the edge is, moved to, towards it. And then once they got there, look to the next edge, you know? Um, and I think that, um, that the more, uh, the more we can do that, well, the, our ability to do that first rests on our ability to recognize that we're human first and, the, and understand humanness and understanding our own unique engines that we bring to the game. Um, and then once we start understanding our engines, we say, okay, now what are those things I can slap on that engine to start exploring my edges and going to the next one and going to the next one. It's kind of like, hey, you know, go to the horizon and then you'll see the next horizon, you know, and that's what fascinates me. And so it starts with being human. So Harari's book really kind of helps me with that. But uh, I would say that's the most recent one. Yeah, un- uncovering the core uh, yeah. of what's at you is great. Uh, if you're looking for an interesting read on creativity, you mentioned that the recommended book reading list. I need to update that because there's been some over the past, I don't think I've, I've added to that in the last six months, some really good ones around creativity. There's this small book called Chase, Chance, and Creativity. If you haven't sure. read it, um, uh, I'll send this afterwards, but start around okay. page 100 and it dives into a lot of around what you'd be really interested in with the creativity um, so that, that might be one that you're really interested in. Yeah. You talk about running towards our edges. Um, and I, I know a friend of yours, uh, Josh Waitskin, former chess prodigy, master learner, his book, The Art of Learning, uh, is yeah. just fantastic. And he's got this concept of being at peace in the chaos. And you brought up that quote earlier around the enemy, never be brave enough or stupid enough to follow us into the water. And yeah. I, I would just love to know, seeking out those edges for yourself, are there things you do now that you're outside the military to put yourself in more chaotic or hostile environments intentionally? Oh yeah. I mean, writing a book is one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I mean, I, when I, I got out of the military and I immediately went into, uh, I went to work for a leadership Institute, um, where we were in front of people, we were giving speeches and also teaching classes. Well, I don't know if this might come as a surprise, but I didn't give a lot of speeches when I was a Navy SEAL and I didn't teach a lot of classes. I, you know, as a Navy SEAL, you're not in front of people a lot, right? So we're being required to speak. Um, so that was way outside my comfort zone. I did not like um, the idea of doing it. And so I said to myself very deliberately, well, um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this and I'm going to step into this to see if I can get better at it and become good at it, which, is I, which I did. Um, writing a book, I love writing, but writing a book is a, is a, is a big undertaking. And so that was another way um, I stepped into that uh, uh, kind of uncomfortable zone. And of course, promoting the book. I mean, again, everything about promotion is typically antithetical to kind of how I spent the last uh, 20 plus years is you don't promote yourself, right? So, so sort of having to think differently and say, okay, how do I, how do I start talking about this and promoting this in a way that it gets out to people and helps people? Um, that's different than it's outside my comfort zone, very admittedly. So, um, so, I, so I'm constantly looking for those edges and I'm gauging it on, of course, where I am in life. You know, I'm not going to be bungee jumping anytime soon. Um, but, uh, but what those edges are and, and how I can look at edges I can go and conquer that are proactive uh, and, and um, empowering and beneficial to my, my life right now, my family, and where I want to go in the future. So, so I, think it's a, I think that's a really uh, important exercise for people to continuously do. Um, and I get it. If you're at the position where it's like, hey, listen, I'm comfortable, I'm good, that's fine too. Um, but I do think the key to growth is this idea of, of stretching the muscle. I mean, we, we go to the gym, we lift weights. What, what are we doing? We're ripping the muscle, right? <laughs> we're ripping the muscle so that when we sleep, the muscles can, can, can grow, uh, repair and grow bigger, okay? Same thing with growth in our lives. You know, we have to go out and find ways to rip the muscle. Um, that means getting uncomfortable. It means, you know, um, maybe having a little bit of pain and, and certainly anxiety and maybe, you know, and fear as well. Um, but all you're doing is ripping the muscle. That's what you're doing. And then if you're doing it the right way, it'll, it'll repair and you'll come out of it, uh, having grown, which I think is cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what life would be without feeling that fear, that pain, that, that loss, all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, you brought this up earlier. I mean, adaptability evolution, I mean, it was one of the, the fundamental laws of human nature. So if we're yeah. not evolving, not adapting, uh, I don't know what we are doing. You, you well, mentioned- I'll just, I'll add one thing. Cause I, I say this too, you know, our life is a sine wave, right? That's what, if we were, if we were to plot our life, the ups and downs, it's a sine wave, it's ups and downs. And the downs are as, as um, important as the ups, right? That's, that's part of the spice of life. And I say, anybody who loves roller coasters, I mean, we, you know, how many of you would like to get on a roller coaster that only went up? Yeah. Right? No, it would be no fun, right? I mean, the, the whole thing about a roller coaster is the loops and the turns and the ups and the downs, right? So, so that such is life. And we need to, you know, as best we can, because there are some downs that are no kidding downs, right? And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I mean, so, so I'm not saying 
that downs aren't bad, um, but uh, to the extent possible, if we can find the value in the downs, um, that will help us. Yeah, a lot of times the, those deepest truths come from those darkest moments. Uh, yeah. you, you mentioned running towards those those edges and for you getting out there promoting the book. Uh, I love supporting people who I find tremendous value um, and real truth in, in their work. And your book, The Attributes, is one of them. Uh, the, the lessons I've learned from you, uh, very fundamental uh, in, in terms of shaking, shaping how I think and how I go about life. Uh, so I would love to know, of course, we're going to have the attributes linked up uh, everywhere uh, listeners can get it. Anything you want to leave listeners with um, about the book? Well, I, I will say, if you go to the website, one of the things we did do, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of this, is that we created an assessment tool that you can find on the website. So once you read the book, you'll, you'll read about the attributes and then you can go to the website and take an assessment to see where you stand, where you fall on the grid attributes, the mental acuity attributes and the drive attributes. And so what we did was we kind of put together questions. We got data from about a thousand people around the, around the world. And so when you get your results, your results will be as compared to a thousand people, right? So, so in adaptability, you might be out of a, out of a 10, you might be a level seven as compared to a thousand people. So it's a good snapshot on where you uh, fall or where we might kind of settle in some of these attributes and give you an idea as to um, which ones you're a little bit higher on and which ones you're, you might be lower on. So, so definitely encourage people to do that because again, my, my goal is to have people try to figure out their own engine and figure out their own palette so that they can then choose whatever pathway they want to choose and and succeed um, and do it optimally, right? Knowing that that success is going to come with it, some hardships, some strife, some discomfort, but that's okay because that's all part of the journey. So so yeah, theattributes.com has all that stuff. And um, and yeah, I would just uh, encourage people to to enjoy it and, and absorb it and go find their find their edges. Yeah, find their edges, knowing yourself, understanding yourself. Someone's one of the, the underlying themes of this entire conversation. Final thing before we wrap up here, uh, I would love to know if you were to sit down for an evening having a conversation like this, anyone dead or alive, just not a family member, who would you love to spend an evening having a conversation with? Yeah, there are so many, but I, the, the person that immediately pops to mind is Carl Sagan. Because <laughs> that guy- I had his I, wife I, on, and Duran. Oh, did yeah, you? I love wow, Carl Sagan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, man, that he's yeah. I listened to him when I was a kid. I remember watching Cosmos and and I just astrology, not astrology, not astrology, astronomy <laughs> um, is fascinating to me. And um, and yeah, Carl Sagan is one of those guys who I could listen to all day long. Speaking of people we could listen to or have a conversation with all day long, Rich, you're one of those people. Uh, the book, The Attributes, is out now. I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Well, thanks for having me, Sean. Real pleasure and uh, honor to be here. So thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.